Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Whale Nerds podcast. This is episode 137. My name is Caitlin, and I am back after a month in Alaska. So it's been a while since we put out a podcast episode. So before we get really into uh, what I've been doing this summer, I just wanted to start with saying thank you for sticking with us with this long break. And we really appreciate your support. Uh, you can always go back and listen to other episodes. I know some of you like to just hop around and choose whatever topic is interesting. Um, and then some of you just listen to every single episode, regardless of how you do it. Thank you so much for uh, staying with us and staying subscribed so that you get notices when we put out new episodes. Um, I also want to say thank you to everyone that supports us on Patreon. And if you're listening to this episode, we would like to send you something within the next couple of weeks. So please make sure your address is updated. I did put that in a, as a post in Patreon a while ago, but if you haven't checked it, then definitely make sure your address is up to date in your profile. That way we can send you a little gift for being a supporter. If you want to support us on Patreon, it's patreon.com slash whale nerds. You can subscribe for as little as $1 a month to support our work throughout the year. And we really appreciate that. Um, also supporting our work. Thank you to everyone that came out on the trips in April. I know we haven't really checked in since then. Uh, things got really chaotic after the April trip as I was getting ready to leave for Alaska. And, uh, Really, really, really appreciate you all coming. Some of you traveled for thousands of miles to come on this trip, and it was really awesome to have you there and watch whales with you. And then thank you to everybody that rates and reviews the podcast too. That helps us find more listeners. It helps kind of keep it moving through the podcast charts in different places so that other people can find us and learn about whales and uh, be whale nerds with us. So for updates, uh, we do have a reduced podcast schedule for this year. I was hoping to do episodes at least once a month, but I'm not exactly sure how that's all going to play out because I'm going to be out at sea quite a bit um, this next six months or so. Um, but I'll try and rack up some episodes on my breaks and be able to schedule them to be posted at a more steady pace. But just know that this year is going to be a little bit slower for us as we focus on our careers and figure out what uh, how the next year is going to look for us professionally. Uh, we do have a blog. I did write up uh, the trip reports from both of the April trips. If you'd like to read those and look at the happy whale IDs that we got back from those trips. And then I did post a little bit of an update about uh, Fran and her calf Aria, which we'll get into in just a couple minutes. But if you want to read those blogs or a follow-up blog about Fran, you're definitely welcome to check those out anytime on our website, which is thewhalenerds.com. And then we also have merch available on there in addition to links to the podcast and other things on our website. So you're welcome to go check it out, thewhalenerds.com. And then just again, a big thank you to all of you that came out on our April trips. We don't have anything else scheduled at this time, uh, but definitely stay tuned on episodes, our social media, and uh, our website. If we do get something else scheduled, then it'll be on all of those places. You can also watch video versions of our episodes now on our YouTube channel. Episode 100 onwards is available in video format. Some of the episodes I put in like graphs and things of uh, what we're talking about. So if you're like, wow, she's talking about a lot of places on the map that I don't know. Um, that's where you can check out some of those resources or in some of those videos. So I'll try and do more of that throughout um, as we go forward, if you find that helpful, definitely let me know if you like it, comment on the YouTube or send me a message or whatever. Um, but just trying to make it more accessible and easy to follow for people if you're really, really interested in that topic. If you're not super worried about all of it, you just want to hear me talk about whales, doing it just audio is fine too. But some people are visual, visual learners, so I figured I would try and change the way we do the video format a little bit. So uh, let's start with our usual sightings report is a little wacky because I've been on a ship for a month, but let's start with our recap of our spring all day trips. We had two of them in Monterey Bay with Blue Ocean Whale Watch and they both went very well considering April is such an unpredictable time of year for weather and you never quite know what's going to pop up whale wise either. So our first trip was on April 21st, and it was actually a pretty nice morning. It was a little bit 
hazy, just a slight breeze and a little bit of a bumpy sea, but really not honestly that bad. And as soon as we got out of the harbor, there was a little cohort of sea lions and a couple whales around, which is pretty nice. Some some years it's real consistent like that in Moss Landing. You always know that you can kind of bank on having a few whales out, out front, which takes the pressure off of the crew to, you know, find whales for the passengers. And then it's a good place to kind of start your day and assess what's going on weather-wise, where the other boats are getting out and going, kind of gives you a few minutes to like gather your thoughts once you get out there. So it was nice to be out there with quite a few different whales. Um, we had lots of different IDs, including a whale named McFly, which has a really gnarly fluke, like lots of killer whale scars all over it, missing the corners on both sides of the fluke. And it actually has also been seen in Southeast Alaska in addition to Monterey Bay. So pretty interesting little whale. Uh, first sighting record was in August of 2021. And uh, it's only been seen in Southeast Alaska, I think one time. And then the rest of the sightings are all in California, as far as I can tell. Let me verify that. Yeah, just one sighting in Southeast Alaska, looking at Happy Whale right now. All the rest of the sightings have been in California, and they've all been in Monterey Bay. So it brings up an interesting point to kind of think about, like, maybe this whale's mom was an Alaskan whale. And then when McFly started to try and, like, figure it out on its own, it figured out to go to Monterey, like maybe it heard a bunch of humpbacks on its way up. Maybe mom stopped by there on their northbound or southbound migration. And it was like, oh, I I can remember how to get to this place. And it decided to hang out there. And it's interesting when whales, I think it's very interesting when whales choose to do that because especially right out in front of Moss Landing, those whales are typically feeding with sea lions and that's not something that happens anywhere else in the world on a regular basis. So is this something that McFly is going to learn and take back to Alaska someday? Is this something that McFly is going to decide they don't like and then ultimately not come back to Monterey? So far, it's been seen quite a bit. Its last sighting was, well, actually, its last sighting was in April. So where is it now? We don't know. Um, and is it going to stick around and hang out for the summer? Is it going to leave and come back? It's hard to say. It was in Monterey in 2022, April and May. And then by the end of May, it disappeared and didn't reappear until April of the next year. So that's another thing to think about is like, Maybe this whale just stops here on its way to Alaska because it knows there's food here and then can't, you know, needs a little refueling stop before it keeps going. And that could be something that its mom did and we just never caught their flukes the year that she did that. And then maybe now it's using an area in Alaska where there's no ships covering it yet or it's not there yet. It was seen outside of Sitka the one time it was seen in Southeast Alaska. And that can be kind of an interesting area because it's not that far to get like offshore from Sitka. Whereas if they're like way in the inside passage, they're kind of like in there, it's fairly likely that someone would see them. But in Sitka, like once they get out offshore, they're out in the open ocean. So yeah, I don't know. It'd be interesting. Hopefully I'll keep an eye out for it. It's a very distinct whale. It would be really cool to see it this summer at some point. But uh, that was a kind of a cool standout individual from all the different flukes we saw. But I did put all the photo IDs in the blog. Um, so we hung out with those whales for a while, made sure we got all the IDs. And then I told Kate at the beginning of our trip that uh, I really wanted to see Aria because they had seen her earlier in the week. Aria, if you can't remember who that is, is Fran's calf from the summer of 2022. Fran unfortunately died at the end of August of 2022 by ship strike and no one had seen Aria since then. And for eight months, we had no idea like what happened to the calf? Did she die when 
Fran died? Did they both get hit by the ship? Did she just starve to death? Was she, you know, surviving somewhere and we just didn't know it? Like, what are the odds of survival of losing your mom drastically at that point? Was mom still producing milk? Like, we just had no idea, like, anything. We had so many unanswered questions and it was so sad. And, like, I think four or five days before, maybe a week before our trip, she was seen in Monterey. She had just like Aria had wandered back into Monterey and like everybody couldn't believe it, but they checked the ID on Happy Whale. They checked it visually and it definitely was her. So she had found a place somewhere to hunker down through the winter, find food and figure it out without her mom. And she came back to a place she knew in the spring where there'd be food. And she came back to Monterey Bay. And so I said to Kate, I said, I really want to see her at some point within the next two days. And Kate was like, okay, well, she's been hanging out in kind of this real specific area for a couple days. So we'll go check that area next. Like after we left the sea lions and the humpbacks in front of Moss Landing. And sure enough, this little whale popped up and it was her. I mean, we couldn't, she didn't fluke until like the very end of our encounter, but her dorsal fin is very distinct. It's like pretty blocky looking. And so uh, Kate had taken photos of her dorsal fin the days before from both sides. And so as soon as we saw her, we knew it was her and she doesn't look like she has any new, like scars to show any injuries. Her tail looks very similar to what it looked like in the spring and summer of 2022. She just has more barnacle scars now. And some of her other scars have stretched out as she's grown. She was at a healthy weight. Her skin looked good and she was trying to feed um, like on her own. She was doing lots of little circling dives and like didn't really give the boat the time of day at all. And so we just watched her until we got a fluke ID just to double check. And then we just let her continue uh, doing her thing. But yeah, it was pretty amazing to have a next chapter in this story of Fran's legacy of her mom's legacy. I mean, Aria's a third generation Monterey Bay whale. And that's something that is more rare on the West Coast of the United States, that we get these kind of stories where whales have a very high sight fidelity. Their calves and their grand calves keep coming back to the same place year after year. Something that's very common in the Gulf of Maine, where I used to work in Massachusetts. But on the West Coast, we just don't really have those stories yet. We're a little later in the game tracking family trees, but also... Uh, the whales on our coast were exploited into much more recent history because kind of the end of whaling was in the Southern Ocean and in the Pacific. And so these whales are still going through an active rebound from the recovery of whaling. And also whale watching is about 20 years newer um, as a full-time operation in some areas of the west coast a lot of companies watched gray whales in the winter time um, but not until the 90s did they start watching humpback whales in the summertime and really making a year-round effort uh, to watch whales and so on the on the east coast it's quite a bit a few decades older as a practice and so we're just starting to get this information from the west coast and it's really really interesting and it's cool to see and I'm glad that Arya has made it. I hope that we keep seeing her. I don't think there's been any sightings into the summer, but June is typically kind of a lull time, like where the whales spread out and move around and then they kind of come back and settle back in. Typically last year that did not happen in June. That happened in like August, which was super weird. Um, but, you know, is what it is. Uh, looks like Arya has not been seen since May 3rd. But she could have just wandered up north to Half Moon Bay, which is where her mom was most of the summer and where she was when she died. Um, and it could be that she just knows later in the summer to go up there and then come back down. So pretty incredible. Um, we did see a few gray whales after we saw Aria. Uh, it was a mom and calf crossing the middle of the bay. They're, you know, really stressed out when they do that crossing over that deep water. They're really nervous about killer whales so we only looked at them just long enough to be like hey we saw a gray whale and then we just left them to do their thing and then as we got further offshore we came across a few more humpbacks but also a really big spread out group of rissos dolphins and that was really fun to see uh, some of them were kind of 
you know, doing their head slapping and their breaching and tail slapping and stuff. And they were in little pockets scattered over a couple miles. And then one just came flying into the bow and started to bow ride. I think that's only the second or third time I've ever seen that in my career that Arissa's dolphin came and bow rode on the boat. And I got some videos of it and it's on our Instagram reels. If you want to check it out, our Instagram is at whale nerds. And so they're definitely like always, they've always been capable of this type of behavior. We see them surf in the waves all the time, but um, seeing them come and bow ride, like specifically seek out the boat multiple times to come bow ride is pretty incredible. It's not something that's very commonly seen with Rissos in California. I don't know about other places. I have seen videos occasionally of Rissos doing that in other places, but um, this is like a real treat for us. Um, the Rissos also interacted with some of the humpbacks in the area, kind of like harassing them. Everybody's rolling around, head slapping, all that kind of stuff for a few minutes. And then when we came back in, the wind was picking up and uh, we ended up coming up to a surface active whale that another boat had reported to us. And it was breaching and head slapping and uh, flipper slapping. And so that was really fun to see as well. It was a nice little topper on the cake for our trip for the first day. And this whale that we saw is also relatively new to science. His first sighting in 2022. The ID number is CRC20366. And all of the sightings have been in California so far for this whale. And it was really fun to see it surface active. It looks like pretty much every single sighting has been moss landing south down to Monterey. So Monterey Bay whale, which is pretty cool. Um, so that was a really nice start to our two trips for the spring. And then we had uh, day two, which was on Earth Day, April 22nd. And it was a very typical uh, spring Monterey Bay day. It was foggy, like thick, heavy fog, no break anywhere. Um, and it was still kind of rolly and bumpy, occasional little bit breezy. And it was clear that like the wind was going to pick up offshore, but it hadn't yet. So it was like a bigger bumpy chop type of wave than it was the day before. And so it was tough for sea conditions for sure. I really appreciate everybody that was on the trip. They totally like understood the drill. Like this is how the ocean is. This is how Monterey Bay is. Almost every single person had been whale watching in California or somewhere else and like knew that this was the deal and they were all in good spirits despite the cold foggy weather which I super appreciated because sometimes you just <laughs> when you're running a trip you just never know how people are going to react to weather like that especially when you're going to be out for like six seven hours but we did have the groups of sea lions out in front of Moss Landing again uh, and there were some whales around, but we really couldn't stay with them because it was so foggy. It was so hard to figure out like where they were going to come up next. And then we went offshore for a while just to see if we could find the end of the fog, maybe like catch the wind line and then ride it in. And, uh, it just didn't, didn't pan out that way. But by the time we came back in from being offshore, there were other boats around where we had seen the whales earlier and more boats around was meaning we could help each other keep track of them a little better. So we were able to get some looks at the whales that were in the area feeding, including a second generation Monterey Bay whale named Murph. And Murph ended up being surface active towards the end of our encounter for over 30 minutes. And it was pretty interesting to watch because at some point we kind of figured out a pattern. Like there was two whales tail slapping together and like Murph was being really random. And then all of a sudden when Murph was by themselves this like pattern emerged of behavior so it would like be down for a long time like long enough for you to give up on your camera and then it would breach twice towards the west and then kind of like turn and swim south and then turn back and like flipper slap a few times with its head pointing east and then it would dive and do the same thing. I think it did it at least five times and we all started to be like what the what but it also made it easier to predict like for photos and videos, if the whale was going to keep doing this pattern. So everybody still got really nice footage, um, which we shared a lot of it right after the trip uh, in our story. And so even though it was foggy, lots of people got really good stuff because we could kind of stay lined up on the whale, which was really nice. 
And then at the end of our trip, once Murph calmed down, we started heading back in. Uh, we did see one gray whale on our way back to the harbor. It seemed like it took took a while to like figure out what it was doing, but it seemed like it was feeding. And it looked pretty thin, which is not unusual for northbound gray whales this, you know, that time of year working their way back up the coast. They're really exhausting the last of their energy sources before they get back to their summer feeding habitat. It's not unusual to see them start to make pit stops to feed along the way. Um, but yeah, we just got some brief looks at it and then we went back to the harbor. There was also quite a few sea lions uh, in the harbor the second day compared to the day before. I uh, The reason why I noticed this is because I was trying to give my like trip wrap up and I was competing with the barking sounds of the sea lions and they were swimming all over the place. And so uh, that's one of the ways I can tell like, oh, wow, there's a lot more sea lions in here than there were the day before because nobody's listening to my end of trip thank you talk. <laughs> Um, no, I'm sure everybody was, you know, kind of listening, but there were definitely lots of sea lions. Um, and then after that, we went down to Del Bonnie beach and we did a beach cleanup with the crew at save our shores. And we were able to take 65 pounds of trash off of our local shoreline this past winter in Monterey and in California in general was really tough for weather. Lots of big storms, lots of big ocean swell on the beaches and Del Monte beach looks way different this year than it has in years past, like way more of the shoreline has been eroded away. There are structures that used to be buried that are now completely exposed, like old cannery uh, pilings, old hotel pilings, lots of brick, lots of just, just like the dunes were eroded away, like into the vegetation. So it was pretty nuts to see how the beach had changed in just a short amount of time. In general, the beach was fairly clean. Like I think people walked a long way down the shore to get the trash that they did get. Um, but I'm definitely glad that we spent the day uh, cleaning up the shore for a couple hours as well as a good way to show our appreciation for Earth Day. And uh, it was nice and sunny too. It wasn't very breezy or anything, which was kind of a nice change of pace from the morning. Kind of got to thaw out walking around on the sunny beach uh, for the afternoon. So overall, very successful two trips. I'm super grateful to Blue Ocean Whale Watch for making that happen for us and super grateful to all of you that came on the trips uh, to to join us and to support us. So that was April. Um, now, after that, I came home for a short little while and uh, was spent all my time getting ready to go to Alaska. So this summer I've been working on the Rold Amundsen, which is one of the vessels in the fleet for Hurtigruten expeditions. It's a Norwegian company and they're doing inside passages of Alaska and British Columbia. And then we start doing offshore routes up through the Aleutians and go out to Nome as well, uh, starting next month. So I've spent a month on the ship. I've been home for a little while, kind of just like regrouping, spending time with my family and um, yeah, it was pretty incredible to see the inside passages of British Columbia and Alaska. In a lot of ways, it's very similar to where I grew up here in Oregon. Um, the Pacific Northwest is, is pretty similar all the way up through Southeast Alaska. Once you get up past the Aleutians, I'm sure it's gonna be quite different, but um, very rainy and cloudy and lots of big trees next to the water, which I like. Um, and I just want to say before I talk a little bit about what we saw, I just want to say thank you to everybody that saw me somewhere or saw the ship and said hi or sent me a message. That was really cool to see like the whale world kind of like everybody's looking out for each other. And there were a couple of times where I was like, oh, I know that boat, like my friends on that boat. Um, and I <laughs> when I got on the dock in Sitka, uh, one of my crew from Maui was like, hi, Captain Caitlin. And I like, my brain was like not prepared. I just was like in the middle of like getting ready to tie up a tender. And I turned around and I was like, whoa, like my, my whole world was collapsing for a second in my mind. And I was like, oh yeah, you were going to be in Sitka. I couldn't remember which port it was going to be. And um, yeah, so it was nice to see Elena. And then also I saw another crew member uh, the second time we came to Sitka too. So um, that's been kind of fun to see people that I know um, in a new place. So our northbound route for our first trip of this season started in Vancouver, Canada. And on the way up to our first stop, uh, which was Misty Fjords, 
Uh, we went offshore. We didn't really go through the inside passage. Once we got out of like Johnstone Strait, Seymour Narrows, um, we bypassed like Prince Rupert, Canada, and we just went offshore past the island of Haida Gwaii. And then we cut back into the inside passage again. So basically, if I'll put a map in the video here, but if you haven't really studied the coastline of Southeast Alaska, um, it's just barely connected to the main part of Alaska up at the top of the map. And it's just the very coastline between like, it's like a little weird thing around Canada. So the, the way they determine the border, I guess, is like from the highest peak to the highest peak within 20 miles of the coast is how they gave Southeast Alaska to the U.S. from Canada. Because if you look at the map, it is mostly like it should be Canada's coastline, but it's not. Um, so Southeast Alaska is like this little section of islands and a little sliver of the mainland of the North American continent until it connects to the proper part of Alaska. So what we are doing, cruising the inside passages, is mostly going in these small little sets of islands and channels and things, whatever the ship could cross, and very rarely going out offshore once we got north back into Alaskan waters. So Haida Gwaii is still in British Columbia, which is part of Canada, um, and Prince Rupert is part of Canada. And then once we got into the Alas inside the Alaskan border, we were pretty much tucked in those inner channels and islands. And a lot of ships can pass a lot of those areas. Our ship is quite a bit smaller and a little bit more nimble, so we can go other places that the bigger ships can't go. But then there are also ships that are smaller than us, like Lindblad National Geographic. They have really small ships. And so do um, some other companies, like Uncruise and a couple others. So there are some other ships around us in some places that we go, but a lot of the places we avoid the big ports and the big ships. And it's actually really nice. I mean, there's some places where I'm like, oh, I wish we would go just so we could see it but then you see how many people get off the ship and you're like oh never never mind <laughs> so uh when we went past Haida Gwaii we went through like the inside passages of British Columbia during the it was in the dark so we didn't really see a whole lot of wildlife saw some birds um but not a whole lot else because it was starting to get dark and then we transited like Johnstone Street and all those areas that are really good to look for killer whales. Um, we transited them in the dark on our first route. When we went out offshore off of Haida Gwaii, we did see um, some doll's porpoise, a stellar sea lion, some cool birds, and then a fog bank rolled in. As soon as we started to get more offshore um, towards the south tip of Haida Gwaii, that first opening, the fog rolled in, which really limited our visibility. Um, but we did go through a couple patches of good gatherings of um, looked like mostly humpback whales. We didn't really have any opportunity to get any photo IDs because of the conditions and the fact that the whales looked like they're actively feeding. So none of them like fluked in the right position as we were going by. Um, but we had some big patches of feeding humpbacks and some good stretches of birds. And then we tucked back in onto the inside passage. And quite a few of the places where we Zodiac cruise... Um, it's a lot of like looking for scenery and like storytelling opportunities and like um, geology and landscapes and things like that. And then the wildlife is kind of a bonus depending on where we are. So like Misty Fjords early in the season, we haven't really seen a whole lot of wildlife in there, but there can be like bears coming down to the shoreline and other herbivores coming down out into the meadows. There's harbor seals in there. And then there's some cool birds like, uh, marbled murelets, which are a good species to talk about connecting the land and sea. There's also some really beautiful waterfalls in there. And the way that the, um, how deep it is right by the waterfall, you can like get the zodiac like inside the waterfall, which is kind of cool to take, like give the people more of an adventurous experience. They usually all have their rain gear on anyway. So I'm like, hey, you guys want to get inside a waterfall? <laughs> um, but it's a good kind of place to talk about how like coastal rainforests are really important to the globe as a whole and that they're really special places. So that was our first route, uh, first stop on our northbound route. Then we went up to Wrangell, which is more of like a human cultural experience, work with a local guide, see the town of Wrangell. Then from Wrangell, we went around to, I think our next stop was Petersburg. And on our way up there, 
was Norwegian Constitution Day, which is like kind of like Independence Day in the U.S. Not as crazy, but um, we had like a little parade on the boat and stuff, which was really cute. And then when we got to Petersburg, it's like the little Norway. So they had a big celebration in town the day we made call in port too, which was really fun. Um, Petersburg is also where people can take uh, trips to see the Leconte Glacier and they saw lots of good wildlife. Um, they saw whales, they saw, I think a wolf attacking a moose. Like they saw all kinds of cool stuff on the excursions, um, that they took from Petersburg. Uh, then from there we went, I think we went, I can't remember. They all blur together, but our other stops were like, uh, Tracy and Endicott arm, which is near Juneau. Uh, it's an active area for harbor seals pupping right now, so we didn't really get very close to the harbor seals, but uh, it was cool to see them. We also saw harbor porpoises down in Tracy Arm, and the first time we were in Tracy Arm, it was so choked with ice, we couldn't get down to the glacier. There was so much ice around, um, which is cool. I mean, it's really fun to cruise in ice and check it out, but it also is very slow, <laughs> and like you really have to pay attention when you're driving, so it makes it kind of hard to like give your interpretation and stuff because you're like really paying attention to what's going on around you and having to actively like fight through ice for quite a bit of the cruise but the guests really seemed to enjoy it we saw some really cool huge blue icebergs which was absolutely beautiful um and then when we cruised down endicott arm i believe we did see a bear but it was pretty distant on the shoreline and then we also went up to haynes and we went to william henry bay and in William Henry Bay on the northbound trip, our first stop there, we had two black bears out on the beach uh, moving around. And one bear came in and out of the forest and in and out of the meadow quite a few times. So almost every single person on the ship, no matter when they went to shore, got to see a black bear. Um, and it was pretty incredible to be able to connect like all of the ecosystems moving from the sea into the forest, into a meadow and really start to like make it all connect together for people, which was really cool. I had to learn a lot for that stop to talk about forest ecosystems and meadows and land animals, um, but it was a really good experience and I'm glad that I've learned all that material because I feel like it gives me a better view and a better way to talk about Southeast Alaska in general because it is a very interconnected land and sea habitat and I do find those intersections very very interesting like I've always said if I was going to do a PhD that would be one of the things I'd want to explore is like how the terrestrial and the marine environments transport uh, nutrients back and forth to each other and how they rely on each other I just think that kind of stuff's fascinating and then after we did all of our inside stuff we went out to Sitka and I really like Sitka as a as a stop like there's lots of eagles everywhere I like walking around in the town um, and I found a really nice restaurant that I'll probably eat at every single time I go there. <laughs> and it was good to see some of my Maui crew there too. So, um, and we saw cellar sea lions in the harbor. Um, our guests saw lots of whales and sea otters. They were very happy after going out on the excursions. From Sitka, we went offshore and on the northbound um, offshore route, it was so gorgeous. It was like just a little bit overcast and it was glassy, flat, calm seas. I mean, real gentle, long rolling swell. We saw lots of humpback whales on our way out offshore and we saw Baird's beaked whales. They were really, really distant, like a mile and a half away. But all of a sudden I kept seeing like these weird like fins, like I thought they were killer whales, but I think it was the beaked whales like rolling on their sides because eventually they all popped up together. There was like seven or eight of them like side by side they all had the exact same size dorsal fins. And then as they all started to dive, one of them did a breach, which for beaked whales, you call that like the terminal lunge. And so I was like, oh man, like at first I was like, wow, that's a lot of humpbacks together. And I was like, wait, they look weird. They all look the same. Something's not right. And then I was like, maybe they're Baird's beaked whales. And like, this is all happening like out loud <laughs> while I'm looking through my binoculars and the guests are like, what is she talking about? And, um, and then one of them breached and I was like, okay, yeah, I'm pretty confident in saying that they're bears beaked whales. And so that was really nice to see. And it was really hard to go to bed at a reasonable hour because it stayed light out past 10 o'clock. 
<laughs> so at one point I finally gave up, even though we were still seeing whales every once in a while. And we had really good looks at black-footed albatross um, and some other shearwaters and other seabirds. So really, really nice night as we transited from Sitka. We were on our way to Icy Bay, uh, which is just north of Yakutat, where the Hokulea had been uh, in port. So the Hokulea is a Polynesian voyaging society uh, traditional sailing canoe that is uh, setting off on a four-year expedition around the Pacific Ocean. Their voyage is called Moana Nui Akea, which is basically like one ocean for one people. So they want to connect all the communities across the Pacific North and South because it is really just one big ocean and we're all connected together. So um, they're doing the Alaskan leg of their journey right now. They're actually about to finish it up and be in British Columbia within the next couple of days. Um, but they've been in Alaska for over a month because they're paying tribute to uh, the Clinket people that helped them build one of their canoes in the 90s. So pretty amazing story. Um, the Polynesian Voyaging Society, when they first built Hokulea, which is the vessel that's in Alaska right now, um, they were in a hurry to build it because they were about to lose uh, the eldest members of the navigational generations that still knew the traditional practices of, of wayfinding. And so they built it in a hurry so that they could train another generation of ocean navigators before uh, they lost the opportunity to do that. But they also wanted to build a canoe in the traditional way of Polynesian people and build it as a community. So the holes of the canoe need to be made from a really big, tall, straight tree. And traditionally in Hawaii, that would have been made of koa wood. But by the time they were trying to find koa trees to build the canoe, there were none that were big enough and healthy enough to use. And so they felt really defeated that they could not build the canoe with their own resources. But they knew this story where there had been a canoe built of, they say, pine. Um, we don't know for sure if it was what kind of tree it was, but a, a tree from the Pacific Northwest. And basically the story is that like when Captain Vancouver was in Hawaii, he saw this canoe and he was like, this isn't wood from here. Like, where did it come from? And the Hawaiian people said, oh, well, the wood was a gift from the gods. So what we think that means is that a tree had drifted down from the Pacific Northwest somewhere and had, fought, you know, landed on the shore of the Hawaiian Islands and the Hawaiian people were like, oh, wow, this is an excellent building material for the canoe. And they built a canoe out of it. So kind of keeping in mind that story, the Polynesian Voyaging Society had some connections with Clinket people in Southeast Alaska. And they were like, you know, this is what we're trying to do. We can't find the materials we need. We're going to need, you know, like they eventually were defeated and were like, we need trees. And so the Clinket people were like, no problem. They're here for you whenever you're ready. And so they ended up building this relationship between the two cultures, the Clinket and the Hawaiian people. And uh, it's an incredible saga of how it all came to be. It's on their website, hokulea.com. You can read all about it, or you can ask me for the article. That's no problem. I can send it to you. Um, but basically, they launched a canoe in 1993 that was built from two Sitka spruce trees from Southeast Alaska. And so um, some of the members of the families from those men that made that possible still live in Yakutat. And so they sailed the Hokulea there as a way to rekindle that relationship 30 years later and say thank you to the families once again and to bond. And then they did a sail all through Southeast Alaska. They were did an official launch and welcoming ceremony in uh, Juneau. And they've been making stops all the way down. They've been chronicling their journey and posting it on social media. It's really, really incredible. So um, I encourage you to follow along with them because these people are pulling off an incredible feat in 2023, navigating the oceans with no modern equipment, just using the methods and uh, materials that their ancestors did, just trying to keep that way of life alive for their culture and they're going to sail for the next four years around the Pacific Ocean. So whenever we see the canoe or we're going to be close, I give a, a talk on the boat about it. And uh, I just can't help but share it on here, too, because it's just an incredible story. 
So we sailed past Yakutat. We went into Icy Bay. Um, it was another place to do some ice cruising. Again, the glaciers had calved off so much ice that it was all really choked up with ice. We couldn't really get close to any of the glaciers. Um, but we did cruise around. We saw lots of harbor seals. We saw uh, northern sea otters. And we saw quite a few different sea ducks like scoters and things. And so it was a really nice uh, place to cruise. Also, um, on the northbound cruise, we got into Ton Fjord, which is where there was this huge tsunami, like a hundred foot tall wave, maybe 300 foot tall wave. I can't remember meters, feet. It's too much information, but, um, you could see up the walls of the fjord where like everything had been scraped off by the tsunami that only happened like eight years ago. It was like 2015, like the, the hillside next to the glacier just like relaxed and let go of like a hundred tons of, uh, material and then it landed on top of the glacier and then that, that broke off and all of it went into the water and it was like thank god no one was there because they would have been dead and uh so it was pretty amazing to see like the scars from the tsunami in there and then after icy bay we went up to college fjord where we did just ship cruising um into the fjord looking at all the different glaciers in this tiny little spot we went all the way up to harvard glacier we saw Harbor seals, we saw sea otters, um, we saw more seabirds, like Arctic terns and stuff. And then um, we came down and we did some cruising in the Esther Channel, which we saw like some birds and it was a nice little cruise. And then we did a little surprise where we gave them like hot chocolate on the boat, which was pretty fun. And then from there, we cruised to Seward, and that was the end of our northbound trip. Um, we did see mountain goats at some point. I think it was in Tracy Arm. Kind of forgot where that all came into place. Um, but overall, very nice trip. We saw scattered humpback whales throughout the trip as well. And then the southbound journey, we basically did the same thing in reverse. Um, when we went into Icy Bay just a couple days later, it was so choked with ice, we couldn't even get like half as far as we did before, um, which is interesting because up at College Fjord, it was more open and we got even closer to Harvard Glacier at the end of it than we did in the previous trip. And uh, we saw some big calving too with Harvard Glacier as well. So it's kind of interesting how some places were better, some places were worse. Um, as we came down offshore from Icy Bay, the weather was not super pleasant but we did see killer whales several times and um, also we saw killer whales when we left from Seward so we'd seen killer whales like three times within the first three days on the southbound journey and then as we got back into the inside passages it had been really rainy uh, for quite a bit of the voyage it rained I think all the way until we got to our last sea day on our way down towards Vancouver um, which is typical of the Pacific Northwest. Uh, the northbound journey, we like kind of worked our way up to the bad weather. We started with like 85 degree weather in Vancouver, and then it was hot and sunny for like the first five days before it started to get cloudy and rainy. Um, but then the southbound journey, it was like cloudy and rainy for like the whole first 10 days. <laughs> um, we got a lot of use out of our rain gear, but it was all right. Um, as we got into Icy Strait on the southbound journey, there was lots of humpback whales. We saw Doll's Porpoise almost every single day on the southbound route. Uh, we saw a lot of stellar sea lions compared to the northbound route. We also took a little bit different path for some of the trips, so that I think changed our sighting, increase, increased our sighting chances. Um, we did see a fin whale one night offshore um, as we were coming in. I don't know if it was when we were coming or going from Sitka, but we did see it one fin whale offshore. Um, a lot more humpbacks in general on the inside passage than this than the northbound trip, which is pretty interesting. And from all the happy whale IDs that we could pull off, um, some of them have only been seen like one or two times before in Southeast Alaska. And then the rest of them were all the typical... Uh, Maui migrating whales, which was pretty cool um, to make that connection for people and be like, look, these whales definitely go here. Uh, one whale, we spent some time whale watching in Tracy and Endicott Arm on our way 
out once we got to that part of the journey. And in Endicott Arm, there were two whales that were actively feeding along the shoreline that we were able to spend quite a bit of time with. And one of them has only been seen one other time in June of the previous summer in Tracy Arm. So it knows this place. Um, but the other one, Southeast Alaska 2699, we have sighting history since 2018. It has been seen in the Hawaiian Islands. And almost every single sighting of it in Southeast Alaska has been in Endicott Arm off of like the nearest port is Juneau. Um, so it was a really cool conversation piece with guests to be like, hey, this whale really likes this place. And it's a good example of how like humpback whales have high sight fidelity. And so it was perfect to like pull up, be able to pull up the matcher show them the profile and be like, look, this is where we are right now. And this whale is often seen here. So like, this is this whale spot. And it was really, people thought that was really super interesting. And then we had some other whales that like maybe have been seen out off the Aleutians and then are on the inside passage and other whales that have been in BC and Alaska. And so some of the whales do use the space and move around a lot. And then other whales are like, this is my happy place. This is where I'm going to be. So yeah, really cool to use the matcher and just get people excited about the whales that we're seeing and try and encourage them to use Happy Whale as well. So hopefully people are going home making those uploads because we're getting some good sighting coverage in some of the areas that we go to that um, other ships are not covering. And then also on the bigger ships, I feel like it's harder to manage that on top of everything else you have to do because you're just like the crew to guest ratio is so much higher. So overall, more humpbacks on the southbound trip. And uh, I can't wait to see what's next when I get back on the ship in July and we start doing the route up to Nome. I'm hoping that we see some really cool stuff as we go out offshore or at least whales that aren't seen very often or maybe whales that go to the other side of the Pacific for breeding. Because once we get out towards the Aleutians and up in the Bering Sea, like you never know, humpbacks could be breeding off of the coast of Japan and using that area during the summertime. So the last thing I want to talk about just briefly before I wrap up the episode. Um, well, I guess I'll share also. So on the ship, what I do in addition to driving the Zodiacs is I gave quite a few lectures or demonstrations or little talks about um, whales in general. Um, talk to people about Happy Whale. We're also using Whale Alert to report our sightings to NOAA from the ship. Um, and then... I did like a demonstration about like how big whales are on our upper deck out on our walking track up on the top of the boat because that's the only place where I could like have people stand around where we could measure out how big a blue whale was. Um, and then I gave some like longer lectures about like what is a whale, what are the types of whales we see on our journey, that kind of thing. So um, it's pretty fun to be able to give lectures in a more formal setting and still do a lot of informal stuff as well. And then in the Zodiac, uh, we're also giving like interpretation of the area that we're in, talking a lot about ice and glaciers and coastal rainforests and all that good stuff. Um, so the last thing I want to talk about is something that happened while I was out at sea. We lost an ocean giant in the whale world. Roger Payne passed away uh, and he wrote a story, kind of some, he like wrote his own eulogy basically. <laughs> for Time Magazine, um, just in his final days before he passed away. And it's pretty incredible to read the, the article he wrote. Roger Payne is one of the people that first brought Humpback Whale Song to the general public with the 1970 vinyl record Songs of the Humpback Whale, along with his wife at the time, Katie, and their uh, other collaborator and friend, Scott McVeigh. Um, so they are the ones that really catalyzed the Save the Whales movement with Whale Song, and he de he dedicated his whole life to learning about whales and protecting whales. He served on the International Whaling Commission Advisory. He um, led Ocean Alliance, which is an organization based in Gloucester. He was uh, part of the SETI project. He's just had his hand in so many amazing things in the whale world. 
over the course of his life, and he definitely is going to be missed. It's a big gap to fill. I mean, he really is a legend in the whale world. But if you want to read the article he wrote for himself, just kind of summarizing his life's work um, and just talking about how he stayed inspired to continue to fight for whales in the midst of every challenge that has come his way over the course of his life, um, I'll put a link to it. And he's just passed away within the last couple of weeks at the age of 88 and really inspiring person. He wrote an incredible book that I read called Among Whales. I definitely recommend it if you're looking for new reading material about whales. He kind of recaps his work with humpbacks and southern right whales and all the other things that he's been he'd been doing. And uh, he just hopes, you know, he kind of summarizes the end of it as uh, his last paragraph here, it says, as my time runs out, I'm possessed with the hope that humans worldwide are smart enough and adaptable enough to put the saving of other species where it belongs at the top of the list of our most important jobs. I believe that science can help us survive our folly. 50 years ago, people fell in love with the songs of humpback whales and joined together to ignite a global conservation movement. It's time for us once again to listen to the whales and to this time, do it with every bit of empathy and ingenuity we can muster so that we might possibly understand them. So, yeah, definitely wanted to give a little tribute to Roger and to his life's work. I mean, what a resume this man had over the course of his life. What an incredible advocate for the ocean and for whales. He'll definitely be missed. And hopefully we can all carry on his legacy of trying to understand these incredible creatures that take care of our planet and protect them for many generations to come. Because honestly, if we do this thing right and we save the whales, we're gonna save ourselves too. So I hope that we can all be inspired to carry on his legacy. And uh, I definitely take motivation from some of his work um, to do the work that I do. So if you made it this far into the episode, thank you for listening to me ramble about like, you know, April trip, Alaska, you know, just trying to get back in the routine here, see if we can get some guests lined up or at least get some science lined up to uh, have a couple more episodes coming your way this summer while I'm still on a break. So thanks so much for listening and uh, we'll see you on the next one. Bye. <laughs>